This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is a Business Radio special presentation. After the blockchain bubble, a look at how the technology works, how it can revolutionize industries, and what the blockchain and cryptocurrency world will look like going forward. Here's your host, Kevin Werbach. Hello, everyone, and welcome to After the Blockchain Bubble, our two-hour special here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. As you heard, I'm Kevin Werbach. I'm a professor of legal studies and business ethics here at Wharton, formerly the co-host of the digital show on Business Radio, and more recently author of the new book, The Blockchain and the New Architecture of Trust. And I'm excited to spend the next two hours with you talking about blockchain, cryptocurrencies, distributed ledger technology. Where are we and where are we going? As you probably know, if you followed this world at all, cryptocurrency prices have crashed over the last year. And many blockchain applications haven't fully taken off or matured. So was this all just a bubble? Was it all just a fad? What comes next? I'm thrilled that joining me are not two, not four, not six, but seven experts in blockchain and cryptocurrencies from a variety of perspectives, entrepreneurs, investors, authors, legal scholars, analysts, uh, all talking about uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain, people who've been in this space a long time uh, and are going to help us understand uh, where things are going and what it means for you. I'm thrilled to welcome my first guest, who's Michael Casey. Michael is an author and journalist, uh, previously with the Wall Street Journal, also advisor to blockchain companies, chairman of the advisory board for Coindesk, advisor to the MIT Media Lab's Digital Currency Initiative, among other things, including being the author of five books, uh, including two with Paul Vigna, called The Truth Machine and the Age of Cryptocurrency, specifically about this area. Someone who uh, I've uh, uh, seen for a long time as uh, one of the best and sharpest observers in the space. So I'm thrilled to have him on the show. Michael, welcome. Hi, Kevin. Thanks very much for having me. Congratulations on your book as well. Thank you so much. Uh, so as I said, you've been watching uh, blockchain and crypto for a while. And uh, one thing that, that anyone in this space knows is that there have been a series of crashes, at least in, in Bitcoin, going back uh, to when it launched in 2009. And uh, this, this whole technology has been declared dead many times in, in that 10-year period since, uh, since Bitcoin launched. So is what we're experiencing now this year any different from your perspective? Well, I think it was uh, – I think the, the, the bubble that we were obviously most definitely in last year, and I think it was almost obvious – uh, despite Greenspan's, uh, Alan Greenspan's always view, you can never tell a bubble until it's burst. It was pretty obvious to many of us that we were in one <laughs> last year. Um, was um, you know, it was markedly different in the sense that it did, it reached out beyond the kind of the fringe world that, that that ultimately we'd really seen interest in crypto into the mainstream. And we all heard the stories about the taxi driver or your mother asking for tips and so forth. And so I think that significantly changed the. Uh, the kind of landscape in which crypto now existed. So, you know, the, the sell-off has, has, is important in that regard because, you know, the people who lost their shirts were actually, you know, serious, uh, you know, or just regular Joes. And as a result, I think, you know, it, it, wasn't, it hasn't been particularly helpful, certainly not to the PR of the space. <laughs> um, but it, um, it, it, and as a result, you know, we may see a longer time for recovery here. 
but you know, um, there are aspects to this that are just you know, integral to the way that this transformative technology is being introduced. It's, it's almost inherent that something as potentially you know, significant in terms of uh, the paradigm shift is going to attract these kind of waves of bubbles. Um, there's still a lot that needs to be done to figure out where it's going to go, and, and the ideas that are spinning out of it are so kind of uh, uh, ad hoc and, and, and you know, dramatic that you get these, these influences. So I certainly wouldn't be surprised that we get back and start to see numbers uh, approaching something where we were in the future. I just don't think it's healthy necessarily to assume that past is prologue here. Absolutely. Well, you made an interesting point about the level of mainstream interest, uh, but you know, there's mainstream and there's mainstream. There is uh, people speculating, and you talked about you know, the taxi drivers day trading uh, cryptocurrencies, but then there's real people using real mass market type services, and you know, everyone always draws analogies to the to the dot com bubble, and I have as well. And having lived through it, there, there's some really interesting parallels. But back then, you had taxi drivers day trading internet startups, but you also had people buying books on Amazon and people searching for things on Yahoo. Certainly, at a very small scale by current standards, but you had some real applications where there were some real metrics. It doesn't seem like we've yet gotten to that point with blockchain and cryptocurrency. So, can we be confident that we will? Um, I'm fairly confident that we will. I mean, it is fair to say as well that in you know the permissioned blockchain space, so ones that aren't necessarily you know, applications of blockchain technology that are not necessarily uh, attached to the crypto assets that were being traded last year and still are, uh, that we are seeing implementations. I mean, we're certainly seeing uh, you know the, the use of it in supply chain applications. We've probably all heard about you know the role that, that Walmart is. Is playing and using it for provenance of goods. Uh, there's a lot of you know a lot of work going into areas like trade finance and the like. And these are all done on permissioned blockchains that don't you know require a cryptocurrency and therefore you know don't have the same level of sort of radical decentralization that we'll have there. But I think those implementations. I'm not you know there are a lot of folks in the crypto space will poo-poo these as being you know something that's that's a, a lesser version of the of the, of the goal principles that they hold but i actually think that 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 those real world implementations that are going on are going to be really powerful ways to test out the functioning of smart contracts the functioning of uh you know um, append only uh record keeping systems and and the like uh at the same time that we have um you know significant uh, improvement it seems in in scaling uh of these permissionless systems uh, such that you know there, there, there's a kind of a preparation, if you like, for this more radical decentralized vision to to actually be incrementable. The reality is that the missionless systems, the bitcoins, the ethereums of this world, you know, just aren't ready for the kind of scale that uh, we we would want to see uh, for transactions on on a global scale. So we need to get that technology right, and I think that having it developed in a private permission setting is actually not such a, a bad way to go about this. So the parallels actually are similar. It's just that, um, you know, it depends on what category you're talking about as to where the actual activity is going on. Right. I'm, I'm with you on that. I, th I think there's some degree of um, religiosity on both sides of the divide where you have people coming out of the, the Bitcoin or, or cryptocurrency world, the, the permissionless side, just saying, well, anything else 
that you know, requires some measure of identity to get on the network is just a database and therefore it's nothing new. And you have people, some of the people in the enterprise world, not all, but, but some saying, well, look, this is the only thing that's real. This, this other stuff is just a science project. And, and I, I think it's, it, it, you, it is a fair point that the really radical innovations of doing this in a fully decentralized way, we've got an existence proof with Bitcoin, but you know, in terms of scaling them up and using them for transactions in the real world, that's going to take time. Mm-hmm. Well, so yeah. let me let me ask you then a, a sort of a related question to that is you've been again doing this for a long time, talking to people about what is the fundamental innovation here. My finding is that you know there still are so many people in the business world and the policy world who are you know, smart people who who still come to me and say, I, I just don't get this. It's not it's not that I'm skeptical. I just don't understand really what it is and how it works. What's the best way that you've come up with to talk to a, a general audience about yeah. you know, what's the innovation here, what really makes it interesting and important? <laughs> it's one of my favorite questions because I, um, I go to record keeping. I go to accounting. Uh, I actually, my very first job out of school. Out of, uh, um, college was as as an accountant, which sort of stuns people because it's not the sort of thing that I would normally they would expect to be associated with me. <laughs> you I actually admit that, job. yes. <laughs> I actually admit I hated the job, and I quit, and I traveled, and I went and did all sorts of strange things with my life, and ultimately became a journalist. I find it quite ironic that all the way back now I am in uh, working in a field where at the center of it all really is the function of accounting, right? The ledger keeping thing, and the thing that I've started to realize is the reason why a decentralized record-keeping system, a decentralized ledger, is so radically important is because it is a big paradigm shift in this function that is core to how civilization works. If you go back to the very beginnings of writing, the first Sumerian tablets and these things that emerged in you know, Babylon and Mesopotamia, that the um, that those first tablets were legends. Uh, the very first name ever recorded in history was that of an accountant. It's no coincidence because we need these systems of record keeping upon which to build uh, society. I mean, without records, without ledgers, we don't have the capacity to exchange, uh, uh, enter into economic exchange upon which we build everything else, right? Right. You need this basis, this understanding of where everybody sits, of what what the common understanding of the value proposition, of the, of the value structure is, where, where, who's up, who's down, what our credits and debit structure is. Um, and we've just for 7,000 years, as that process has gone on, we've relied upon central entities to do that, which means that there is a whole function of trust. Um, and to move from that to a decentralized structure, if we just... Just you know, work with that assumption that, that, that accounting is fundamental to everything. Then to move to a decentralized structure is radical because it removes this uh, requirement to, to, to reconcile uh, across all of these multiple siloed centralized systems. If at any given time a community has a common understanding of what the consensus view of the truth is around this common uh, you know, number set, then then, then this, you remove a lot of this, uh, you know, thing that we describe as the cost of trust that exists at every single hop between each of these reconcil- reconciling uh, actions. And when people say, you know, a blockchain is expensive, which is which truly is, is the case when you think about the added computational requirements of having every single computer run the same record, what they 
don't do a very good job of, of doing is weighing that cost against this cost of trust. Right. And the cost of trust is, is deep. Like it's every it's it's in you know as I say the reconciliations every every single uh, skyscraper of the world is filled with cubicles of accountants whose main job is to reconcile their company's accounts against somebody else's. The weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual audits and rec- The bookkeeping process is an extremely uh, cumbersome and costly exercise precisely because we don't trust each other. Uh, you know, and it's just, it means trust just generally. It doesn't yeah. mean that there's sort of evil. It's just simply that we are organized around different trust bylaws. So the idea that we could actually have a common record is a profound idea. And I just don't think people quite recognize that, that that's as significant as it is because it's just something they just assume. We just assume we've always done accounting in this way. You can't recognize it as something to be disrupted unless you see it as you know, a cost. And, and I don't think it's fully understood in those terms properly. This is Kevin Werbeck, and you're listening to After the Blockchain Bubble, our two-hour special. I'm speaking now with Michael Casey, author and journalist uh, in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space. Um, and, uh, Michael, you, I think you did a good job of, of explaining in um, uh, terms of trust why this phenomenon is so important. And that's something that, that I focused on a lot. It's you know, The title of my book is, is Blockchain and, and Trust. And I think the, the critical thing is, is what you said, that, that trust is a cost in transactions, but of course it's also a benefit. If you have trust, then you can do all sorts of interactions that are, that are either not going to happen or going to happen with all sorts of other costs, other sorts of uh, things that have to be put into place in the absence of trust. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've been you know, focused a lot on the, the fact that um, these, are, these blockchain-based systems, are, they're not really trustless, as people like to say. They, they mm-hmm. reinvent trust in a different way. What, what's your, your view about that? Yeah, I think that's a great – I really don't like the term trustless. In fact, I would never want to live in any place that doesn't have trust. I mean, trust is the essence of, of civilization. In our first book, The Age of, Cur- of Cryptocurrency, you know, we talked about you know, the failure of trust in, uh, in Argentina, where I'd lived for six years, and, and, and sort of how it's at the core of its monetary dysfunction. Uh, so trust is this kind of, um, you know, this asset, this social asset that needs to be developed. I thoroughly agree with you. But what I think is a right way to think about this is therefore to think of the record-keeping function generally as a trust-generating concept, right, even if it's centralized or decentralized. Uh, once we agree on numbers, we have a system of trust upon which to enter into exchanges of that, 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 that build upon that trust. What we're doing is trying to find a more uh, effective uh, collective way of managing that layer, the record-keeping layer, so that you know all the other uh, exercises can be can be done on top of that. I'm also you know of the view, and one of the things that often comes back when people say, "Well, hang on a second, you know this is just this is just recording the sequence of transactions." Um, you still have to trust whoever's inputting data into system. I think that's absolutely true as well. The notion, for example, that Bitcoin is completely trustless forgets the fact that we, you know, we have to trust the devices that are putting the, the, uh, you know, the data yeah. in there. That that you know, the entire Bitcoin ecosystem is built upon countless structures of trust. Whether it's the, you know, the the uh, centralized exchanges that means the money or 
uh, or just simply, you know, the transactions themselves between two entities who agree on or don't agree on what the, what the exchange is. There's always trust there. So uh, I, I just don't see the fact that we have to still have trust embedded into uh, a blockchain as somehow diminishing the fact that the one, this one layer within it, that is the sequencing of the transactions once they've gone in, is somehow, you know, is somehow diminished. It, it, it's about trying to, we still have to figure out how best to assure ourselves of those trusts, right. you know, whether it's devices or, you know, work processes or, you know, accounting functions, whatever it is that's designed there to, you know, assure that we're comfortable with the, with the information that's going in, that all needs to be in place. Right. But, so, um, so that let me yeah. let me interrupt you. So that gets to the the next thing I was going to ask is is what's needed from here. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you've described this foundational change in in structure of trust and and record keeping. As we talked about early on, uh, you know, some of the technology is the, these decentralized permissionless systems still not very mature. But you know, is that what what's next, um, or is it more? Uh, resolving regulation or, or comfort level among businesses. What what do you think it will take? Not not necessarily. I'm not asking you like what it'll take to get the prices back up, but but more broadly in terms of the next step in maturation of this phenomenon. But yeah, and it is an interesting way to frame that question because it is uh, precisely around how do you get individuals and businesses to trust the yes. kind of superstructure of everything right so certain certainly things like regulation which again can be an anathema to a more radical kind of uh a libertarian or you know anarchic view of what bitcoin should be but it but it is i think you know that that, that smart regulation or self-regulation uh as well you know s- sort of systems that, that develop standards and expectations of care uh ratings agencies you know whatever they are that give people a sense that the actors in this space can be trusted um and 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 won't be out there to abuse you it will be very very important for for adoption um and then i think there's a lot of work that can be done uh around the edges looking at the devices like there's i i do believe that uh you know the interplay between trusted computing modules and things like that uh, you know, through you know, Internet of Things uh, networks and the like, uh, figuring out how all of those devices can interact in a tr- in a in a way that we can trust and and submit data to a, a common record like a blockchain uh, is is one of the things that will then enable us to to roll out these kinds of systems across the emerging sort of fourth industrial revolution of. Uh, of devices that, that we expect to see. So all of them really deal with trying to resolve that, that trust problem, whether it's the device, the individuals, the, 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 um, you know, the regulatory framework. There's a lot of work has to be done on standards. You know, consortia need to be developed around what kinds of um, you know, APIs can be shared to put, put data into these systems. There's just there's a lot that needs to happen at the superstructure level uh, to, to, to give everybody a sense of confidence in, in how it's all working. And we've got to wrap up in, in just a minute to take a, a break, but uh, the last thing is, given that, uh, how optimistic are you that um, the crash in the prices and the skepticism and, and all of the uh, regulatory enforcement actions we've, we've already started to see responding to a lot of the fraud and abuse that was happening aren't going to uh, scare too many people away, either at the customer side or at the developer side, to really take that next step? 
Well, one thing is clear that, you know, uh, human investors uh, have pretty short memories. <laughs> so um, uh, it'll take a while for people to want to sort of climb back into this space. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think that the price was an absolute distraction. I think it was actually, you know, the, the kind of image that it presented of this, this sort of speculative, greedy culture really wasn't very helpful. So I, I think this is actually a good opportunity to see people build and develop the technology. And we are seeing that. I have a column coming out in Coindesk maybe today or a little bit tomorrow, but just looking at a lot of the really interesting scaling initiatives that are happening, not only in Bitcoin and Ethereum, but a lot of these other new blockchain models that are serious. They're working heavily on you know, new permissionless systems. There's there's sharding. There is uh, you know uh, uh, you know proof of stake models. There are uh, you know layer layer yep. two uh, channels and things like that, which are going to make these systems much more scalable and viable. This is the sort of thing that could be our worldwide web moment. And I think you know we just need the sort of time and space and tranquility, perhaps that the uh, the more subdued market environment gives us to allow this to happen. So, yeah, I'm, pr- I'm pretty optimistic that, that this sort of massive developer community that's, that's still very interested and passionate with this will, will come through and deliver something pretty viable for the world to, to use in a constructive way. Michael Casey, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Kevin. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 